Okay, I want to welcome all of you to uh, our uh, week weekly session, and we're very fortunate to have with us Rosemary Foote. But first, I'm going to ask Nick to remind uh, new people uh, how we're going to do the questions. Nick? Thank you, Ezra. Um, so those of you who have been here before, you know how to do this. Those of you who are new, welcome. Um, at the bottom of your screen, um, you can see the, the options for Zoom, and one of those is a Q&A tab. You just click into that, you can submit questions. Um, you should be able to do so anonymously if you wish. This meeting is being recorded and will be up on YouTube after the event. Um, so please use that option if you want. If you aren't submitting questions anonymously, please identify yourself and your affiliation so we know who's asking the question. Um, thank you very much. We're very uh, pleased to have with us today Rosemary Foote, who's coming to us uh, straight from Oxford, her home uh, right near Oxford. And she's uh, been many years at St. Anthony's, uh, which is the International School at Oxford. Uh, Rosemary has trained a lot of the PhDs, uh, not only in England, but in China and around the world, uh, who are working on international relations for many decades. Uh, she first went to China in 1974 uh, she spent time at Renda and she spent time at Fudan. Um, she has spent time at uh, Columbia and Harvard uh, and other universities in the United States. She's been an international figure and I think she's trained something like 30 PhDs, Rosemary, is that something like that? That's right, yeah, yeah. And um, at least 50% women, so that's... <laughs> You've done, done very well. And so she's She's really been uh, one of the great leaders in the field of China international relations, and she has a new book out. And so we're very fortunate to have her uh, uh, talk about her new book today. She's uh, just hitting a road now. Uh, she just talked at Chatham House in England already about her new book. And so she'll tell us about uh, her new book uh, on uh, related to the United Nations issues. So without further ado, Rosemary, cheers. Thank you very much, Ezra. Thanks for a really generous introduction and for inviting me to, to be with you today. We're delighted to have you. Yeah, I wish I could be there in person. That's yes, really the moment, of course. And thanks to the Fairbank Center. And I should also mention Bob Ross, actually, who was very kind in suggesting that we, we try and set something up uh, when I was with him in what seems like very halcyon days. Now in Oslo, we were both at a conference in Oslo. Seems, seems like a, a completely different world when I think back to that time. But anyway, I'm here now on Zoom and I thought I'd probably begin by trying to give some kind of broad context for, for the book. Why did I do this particular book? Why did I focus on these questions involving involving the UN. And it's partly because for some time I've been interested in the implications of China's resurgence for global and regional order. Um, I find it one of the most defining questions in international relations scholarship. And of course, it's of importance to the policy world as well. And then that interest has been further deepened because the Chinese themselves have, have, have talked a lot about their intention to play a larger role in global governance, that they have a good story to tell, it's time for them to start telling this story, um, and that they have special responsibilities, as they would put it, to, to fulfill. Um, Xi Jinping in particular um, has made a number of statements where he 
He talks about China leading the reform of global governance. Um, in uh, there was a, a statement along the lines that China should actively participate in the formulation of international rules, become participant, promoters, leaders in the process of global governance changes. So this is a big change, I think. We're, we're in an era of greater Chinese ambition, uh, an era where it's creating new international organizations. We're all familiar with the AIIB, of course, and it's offering alternative, bolstering, sometimes more familiar um, global ordering principles. And in, when I think about it, I, I see China sort of networking in what I call loose influence groups. Um, so, for example, with the like-minded group at the Human Rights Council or with the um, G77 plus China in the UN General Assembly or, of course, via the Belt and Road um, um, initiative. And I decided that I wanted to explore questions like this um, through a study of China and the UN, because I see the United Nations as a, as a useful platform in many ways um, for China to articulate its beliefs, uh, world order related beliefs. It's an important platform for exercising power. Um, uh, and it's also um, China, a place where China sort of uses the opportunities to boost its international image. So this idea of being a responsible great power. You've probably noticed that China uh, regularly references the fact that it was the first country to put its signature on the UN Charter. Of course, it doesn't mention that it happens to be the nationalist government of China that did that. But nevertheless, that's in several statements, official statements. It's the first country to sign the UN Charter. And the idea is that it therefore played a major role in the creation of post-war order. Um, and it's also singled out the United Nations as the most authoritative, representative, multilateral organization that we have. Um, and it's stressing that since 45, it's made a major contribution to the workings of the UN, um, and even more so in the post-Cold War era, and I'll come on to that in a minute. So despite the fact that the PRC doesn't get to be a member of the UN until 1971, there is now a discourse about this positive relationship between China and the United Nations. And certainly, the UN has been um, a major multilateral institution since 1945. It, it's, it's an institution that tries to reflect a world of shared norms. It expresses these in the, via the UN Charter, but also in various other UN documents. Um, and it's a key component, if you like, of, of the liberal dimensions of global order. I mean, we see that in its practices, its um, commitment to open debate, um, its inclusiveness, all states, um, virtually all states in the international system are members, transparency via the documentation of, of meetings, the involvement of non-state actors in its deliberations, all of these factors reinforce the UN's association with liberal dimensions of global order. And in normative terms, these, these liberal elements act, actually have been reinforced in the post-Cold War era as the UN has turned to a focus on human protection, hence 
the, the title of my book. So from the 1990s in particular, you see the UN operating on the basis of a broadening of the concept of security uh, and arguing that internal breakdowns of a state security as well as large scale um, violence directed at individuals pose uh, potential challenges to international peace and security. And one of the most important statements along those lines was that given by Kofi Annan in 1999, very famous statement um, where he says along the lines of, in our contemporary reading of the UN Charter, we are more than ever conscious that its aim is to protect individual human beings, not to protect those who abuse them. Um, and that, you know, that was very sort of evocative of this, this kind of post-Cold War framing for the role that the United Nations might play. So over the period from the late 1990s through the 2000s, you see the UN trying to incorporate as core norms in its deliberations, the idea of the protection of civilians in armed conflict, that governments have a responsibility to protect their peoples from mass atrocity crimes. Governments need to recognize the differentiated and negative consequences of conflict for women and children in particular. They need to take actions to stop um, the widespread use of conflict-related sexual violence. Uh, with a new Human Rights Council that replaced the Human Rights Commission in 2006, that Human Rights Council requires all states to count, account for the lapses and triumphs, of course, in its human rights protections through what's called the universal periodic review process. And where they have lapsed, they are required to seek remedies. Um, and since China um, determined to increase its influence and the resources that it devotes uh, to the UN, um, then the, steady, the, the study of this relationship between China and the UN, I think helps us to navigate questions of particular interest to IR scholars, as well as to policymakers, as I said earlier. So questions like, is China reshaping international organizations from within, um, if at all? Should we regard China as a revisionist, a reformist, status quo power, the sorts of categories that Avery Goldstein used in his very recent international security article, or is it seen as an adopter, an adapter, or a reformer? The sorts of questions that Sean Breslin in the UK has been uh, um, asking. Does Beijing represent a challenge to liberal dimensions of global order? And if so, what kind of challenge, what degree of challenge? Um, to quote Jessica Chen Weiss, who I think has also spoken at the Fairbank Center recently, she had a, a, a very, very helpful foreign affairs article where she asked the question, is China making it a world that's safe for autocracy? Or if you play off the title of John Eikenbury's new book, um, that title is really saying, does is it, are the changes that we're witnessing in global order making it a world that's actually less safe, safe for democratic countries? So, so that was the sort of broad context for um, my study. But if I turn more explicitly to the research puzzle at the heart of this, why did I come into this? I, I came into it because of 
matters of timing. China becomes more deeply involved in the work of the UN at the time when the UN is moving beyond Westphalian principles um, into this era where it's focused on human protection, those issue areas I talked about earlier. So the decision to focus on human protection is because it's an idea that invites normative contestation of a particularly fundamental kind for a government like China that's privileged the security of the state above that of the security of the individual. So human protection appeals to sort of universalist cosmopolitan principles and implies imposing limit, limits on sovereignty. And yet China became more deeply active within the United Nations um, at this time when the UN is turning its focus to human protection. And it's also a time, of course, when China has increased capacity to project its beliefs in the values of state-based pluralism um, and acceptance of diversity and, and difference. So my next research question was along the lines of how is China actually working within international institutions like the UN that have taken a direction that seems uh, appears to challenge its, its core beliefs. So the, the book explores a series of how questions, how is it working through the various issue areas that I outlined at the stop, start, protection of civilians, R2P, um, work in the Human Rights Council, women, peace and security agenda, and so on. Um, as, as a number of you will know, I'm, I'm influenced by constructivist and English school approaches to IR theorizing, um, and they've influenced the framing of the project um, that I'm talking about today. So I'm sympathetic to approaches that explore the social construction of reality. Yes, of course, I am interested in changes in material power, but I'm also interested in the how that changes the, um, the social interpretation of a particular state and, and a particular state's behavior. So I'm interested in the social context in which decisions are made and taken. Um, my, my subtitle of the book, uh, Beliefs, Power, Image. So what I'm doing in, by, by drawing out those three elements is I'm saying that there's an interrelationship among these three elements that needs to be ex explored. So I'm talking about a kind of mutually constitutive relationship between China's power, that is its material and social influence. And, and, and I mean by that power, yes, certainly that can be used as leverage, but power also is the ability to set agendas, to gain non-coerced followership, um, and to perhaps to shift the meaning of dominant global norms towards an interpretation that um, is closer to those that the state believes validates its own position. And I look at international image, um, particularly image as responsible great power, because it's important to China, both domestically and internationally, and it shades its perspectives and the positions it takes in, in a number of these issue areas I'm looking at. Um, I think about domestic ideological beliefs um, and note that if you look over a long, long historical period, um, a set of beliefs derived from several different phases of China's political progression and coalesce around the idea, if I put it in a fairly benign form, that a governing authority's success requires strong centralizing institutions, 
social harmony or otherwise known as social stability um, and recognition of the larger social value of um, economic development. So in, co in covering that interrelationship, I, I hope will, will helps to um, explain the dynamic nature of Beijing's policy responses and helps us understand how China's responded in the UN to as the bodies attempted to move towards a post-Westphalian uh, global order. So I'm hoping that the the empirical work undertaken in the book shows that China's growing power has been used in service of the firmer articulation of its ideological beliefs, um, together with an effort to reconstitute what it actually means to be a responsible great power in the global system. So by China, by operating as an engaged actor in the UN, by engaging in public debate, in an environment that is actually quite sympathetic to the ideas that it's been putting forward, it can potentially reconstitute what is understood by responsible international behavior. Um, turning to the broad findings of the research, um, what I argue in the book is that China's offering an alternative set of understandings, alternative to dominant UN understandings, at least among the Secretariat and some member states and civil society, about how best to give effect to human protection. And I'm going to try and represent this um, in pictorial form. So the idea is to share the screen here. Um, and I hope that is the case um, that I'm showing PowerPoints here. Somebody tell me if I'm not. It's working. It's working. It's working. Okay, great. So this is the sort of the basic um, UN three pillar structure. You can't have development, the secretaries general say, without peace and security. You can't have security without development. You can have neither of those two things without attention to human rights. That, that's the sort of the core formulation of the UN's three pillar structure. Um, and um, it's, of course, it, it's built into the UN charter. Um, but China's come to articulate something rather different. Um, and I think um, I have decided to call it a triadic model. Uh, it's not a term that they use, uh, but it uh, is a model that looks something like this, where you link, as I said earlier, development, social stability, strong state, that aids in conflict prevention, conflict resolution, and it leads the protection of people. Um, that model, I think, has come out more clearly, especially since um, the presidency of Xi Jinping. Um, it's not that these ideas weren't mentioned in earlier periods, but they have become um, form made more formal in various uh, presentations. Um, and uh, um, it's, a, it's a model that, um, again, you can see in, in official documents, official statements, if you look at Xi Jinping's um, statement at the 75th uh, anniversary of the UN just the other day, uh, they, these elements um, uh, are represented in that statement. Um, uh, what it does, of course, is it's a model that downgrades the significance of human rights, uh, contrary to the place given to rights in the UN three-pillar structure, and it also downgrades a role for uh, civil society in this term of social stability, and I'll come on to that in, in a bit, bit later on. 
if I put this in a slightly different form again, um, um, just drawing out a couple of concepts here, that of sovereignty and security. Um, again, the table is designed just to show, point up some of the differences between dominant UN understandings and um, um, uh, Chinese understandings of, of particular elements of, of um, these two concepts of sovereignty and security. But I want to flag straight away that um, the heading United Nations in this table is in some senses covering up a great deal of complexity. So the, the table is suggesting a Beijing that's attempting to undermine support or at least is challenging um, the three-pillar structure that the UN um, Secretariat and the Charter continues to advance. But Beijing's support for its own model among developing countries um, uh, represented in the UN has become quite large. Now, yes, this is in part because of economic leverage or use of economic largesse, uh, but also as a result of China's uh, demonstrable um, economic success uh, in sustaining high growth rates until very recently, bringing some 800 million Chinese out of poverty as the economic organs of the United Nations themselves constantly reference. Um, and this immediately raises questions for me then um, about um, the extent to which China actually has to um, act, because there's something of an alignment in uh, Chinese views and the views of other states within the, the United Nations. So China doesn't always have to act. There is, as, as I suggested in my earlier part of the presentation, there is a degree of non-coerced followership where China is concerned. And that then raises questions about what kind of normative order the United Nations actually represents. The extent to which this post-Cold War, post-Westphalian framing that I referred to has actually taken root. And so that again in turn raises questions about the level of Beijing's challenge um, to this component of global order. Let me give you some flavor of what these um, generalized concepts mean in terms of actual policy positions. So I do some of this in, in the fourth slide here, um, but I'll say a bit more than is in the slide itself. So uh, across this um, various dimensions of, of, of human protection, we see Beijing promoting and linking each le leg of the triadic model that I tried to introduce to you. So the state is predominant rather than the individual, and it promotes this uh, through narrowing the, or trying to narrow the concept of what represents a genuine threat to international peace and security, and therefore restraining, attempting to restrain what should be on the UN Security Council agenda. So it would prefer to move the focus away from evidence of mass atrocity crimes as threats to international peace and security, or what could be considered civil wars as threats to international peace and security, some diluting to some degree the emphasis on protecting civilians uh, towards firmer support for the government in power. 
um, it, it makes plain, I think, that the UN Security Council should be considered basically as an enabler or a supporter of the government in power. So you will find many statements um, repeated that the Security Council should provide constructive assistance but must respect the sovereignty of the country concerned. And when there's evidence of some kind of, um, some form of atrocity crime having been committed inside a state, then domestic judicial institutions are to be the ones that uh, address this question and seek redress. China drink, links the, the status and the developmental legs of the models, um, again, in various different ways. So if we turn to, as the UN constantly does, a focus on capacity building for fragile states, this becomes a development issue for China, one that should involve ECOSOP, UNDP, rather than the Security Council. So uh, again, China states that the Security Council should reduce its concern with security sector reform inside states, reduce its attention to the building of inclusive and representative political institutions, focus much more on the economic aspects on the development side. If you think about R2P, the responsibility to protect, that has a three pillar formulation associated with it. Pillar one um, says it's the state's responsibility to protect its uh, population from mass atrocity crimes. Pillar two says uh, that uh, in its attention to international assistance, that the international role is to build state capacities to help the state in question in its atrocity prevention role. And it, Beijing argues, in addition, that it's the state in question that needs to determine um, what kind of assistance it needs and when it, when it needs it. And the pillar three element of R2P, which is about an international uh, community response in the event that a state is manifestly failing to protect its population, gets relatively little attention in China. When China thinks about the causes of conflict and therefore conflict prevention, conflict resolution, then those things are bound up uh, in its view with poverty and underdevelopment. When it turns to, when Beijing turns to the women, peace and security agenda, again, it becomes for China a women's rights and a development issue. So women's rights, it states are the prerogative of the government in power, or at most something of international concern for the Commission on the Status of Women. Women's empowerment, which is a key feature of the Women, Peace and Security agenda, should be promoted through the development arm of the UN, China says. Um, 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 even though the concept of empowerment in this WPS agenda is actually much, much larger than that. If we look at China's um, diplomacy in the Human Rights Council, again, we see China promoting more vigorously to alternative norms um, and challenging more directly the focus on the universality and indivisibility of human rights. So Xi Jinping in a speech in Geneva in January 2017 at the Palais des Nations affirmed sovereign equality as the most important norm governing state-to-state -state relations and that in itself as the main protector of human rights. And China from um, June 2017 started introducing its own um, resolutions at the Human Rights Council. It hadn't done that before. 
um, and they were about the contribution of development to the enjoyment of all human rights um, and about mutually beneficial co cooperation in the area of human rights. On the emphasis that it's, when it's placed this emphasis on development, um, it's obviously, again, repeating that we need to raise the profile um, of economic, social and cultural rights. And it's arguing for development as a foundational right from which other rights might eventually flow. And it's also arguing to some degree that cultural diversity raises fundamental questions about universal principles. Just quickly turning to the social stability leg of China's triadic model, um, and this is particularly the case after the Arab Spring, uh, official statements emphasize the duty of governments to maintain public security, public order, the need to curb the use of social media. Um, it's tried very hard to restrict NGO role um, in the UN and elsewhere, arguing that UN NGOs actually need to be, gov to be guided in the work that they undertake by, uh, by and on behalf of the government in power. And it's cast doubt on the impartiality of NGOs, especially those working in the human rights field. Um, it's argued that the international community, and that's a term that it's begun to use more frequently in its discourse uh, in the UN, uh, particularly in Security Council debates, possibly because it links it can be linked with the idea of the shared community of humankind. Anyway, it uses that term, but it argues that the international community cannot agree on who should be defined as a human rights defender, and that there's no international consensus on who, who should have that designation, and therefore their representation should be more strictly um, controlled. And in the Human Rights Council in particular, it talks about these groups, the NGO uh, groups, as essentially confrontational and that their information lacks credibility. Um, let me raise the question of how successful China's been in promoting this agenda. Um, um, the, to talk first about some of the UN-related um, reasons for China's success, and I think it has had a relative success. And it's partly because of the greater attention that um, the Secretariat and other specialized agencies of the UN have actually given to the relationship between underdevelopment conflict and human protection. So there've been a number of important studies, not least one in 2003 produced by the World Bank, which was about the causes of civil wars um, and the um, um, and the and the if you like the repetitive nature of, of, of civil wars within one particular society that uh, particular project and the book that resulted from it puts great emphasis on the role of underdevelopment in causing conflict and in promoting recurrence of conflict and I think that influenced um, um, the secretariat approach. Um, there's also been the recognized difficulties of enacting this um, complex human protection agenda that I've outlined very briefly. So how do you protect uh, thousands of civilians caught up in armed 
conflict? How do you protect women and children in particular at times of conflict? There's also been um, a great deal of criticism of, of so-called Christmas tree um, mandates that are far too complex, include far too many tasks um, with too few resources. So the UN regularly is seeking ways of doing things better, looking for alternatives, um, looking um, for ways of reforming the agenda that it's put forward. This provides a space for Chinese ideas to be articulated. And of course, China's aided as a result of the decline in Western influence at the United Nations, not least in the fact um, of the diminished Western presence in UN peace operations. So um, the, that's been something that's happened over the last several years. And there doesn't seem to be any prospect of that changing in, in the future. Then, of course, there's the role of the United States, always an ambivalent relationship with the United Nations, but particularly so with the Trump presidency and the obvious denial of the benefits of, of multilateralism as far as the Trump administration is concerned. Um, we, that's been added to because of cutbacks to the UN, the US cutbacks to the UN budget. It's seriously behind with paying its UN dues. And as you know, it's pulled out of Human Rights Council, out of UNESCO, WHO. And all of this is against the backdrop of increased um, contribution or resources on the part of China. So 2015, Xi Jinping announces the setting up of a 10-year, uh, $1 billion China-UN Peace and Development Fund to, um, to be used to fund particular projects of interest to the Secretariat, um, that it would join the UN peacekeeping readiness system would establish a standby force of 8,000 troops, what it has done, and uh, offer uh, a grant to the African Union um, to help it in its peacekeeping role. Um, it's become, uh, again, as it constantly reminds us, the second largest contributor to the UN budget and offers more peacekeeping troops than all other uh, P5 members combined. It's also the case that the Belt and Road Initiative has made some headway within the United Nations, uh, in part because the Secretary General and the Secretariat is extraordinarily concerned about the ability of the UN to reach the sustainable development goals that have an amb ambitious target of completion by, by 2020. So calling on Belt and Road economic largesse has been a, an important element um, that's um, helped to align China and the United Nations in, in a closer way than was true of the past. And I think a final point, not on that slide actually, um, but Beijing's recognized an often positive relationship with African governments. And that of course is the continent where most of the UN's peace operations actually take place. That positive relationship is seen as beneficial to the um, legitimate enactment of uh, key parts of the UN's um, um, peace operations policy. So if, if China does offer its support for a peace operation, uh, then that uh, UN Security Council role is additionally validated. If I, uh, my final slide, thinking about China, um, more direct China-related reasons for its 
its enhanced influence. Yes, of course, it's using its economic centrality to many states in the in the global system to forge alignments and to build voting uh, coalitions. It's using discourse of various forms to promote the successes of its own model. So staging exhibitions, inviting party leaders um, from other states to learn about its political economic model. Um, there's a famous statement of Milos Zeman from the Czech Republic who visited China um, and he said, I'm not here to learn about uh, democracy and human rights. I'm here to learn about democracy and, uh, sorry, development and social stability. So th obviously that kind of um, uh, linkage um, between China and certain states um, has allowed for, again, um, the diffusion of ideas about uh, the political economic model that I term the triadic model. And it's working with other post-colonial states which are similarly concerned about the interventionist aspects of a post-Westphalian UN. So Beijing finds itself able to get voting coalitions together in bodies like the Human Rights Council, for example, um, because post-colonial states feel um, similarly um, concerned about a more intrusive UN human protection agenda. Let me see if I can stop the sharing. Um, and I hope I'm back on main screen then. Is that right, Ezra? Yes. Am I back on? Yes. Okay, great. So I'm not trying to suggest in all of this that there isn't normative resilience, that there isn't um, uh, some pushback on the part of the United Nations to these sorts of ideas that China has been articulating. If, if you look at something, if you go back to this uh, example of the relationship between development and the outbreak of conflict, um, UN reports do stress the necessity for sustainable development in raising levels of human protection. But they also, those reports also accord what you might think of as a, as a key role for global governance. So there was a very interesting 2018 uh, study that linked the <coughs> World Bank with the Department of Political Affairs in the, in the UN. Um, it was called Pathways for Peace. And the message of that 2018 report was, yes, growth and poverty alleviation are crucial, but alone they will not suffice. So you need inclusive solutions, you need institutional reform, you need redistributive policies. Um, if you look at goal 16 of the UN's 2030 sustainable development agenda, for example, that emphasizes very strongly that sustainable development requires justice and that means accountable political institutions and human rights issues run throughout the, the sustainable development goals. So there is a certain amount of pushback. Um, I think there's been a certain amount of um, pushback on um, certain things like the Syrian crisis where China has used vetoes alongside Russia on a number of different occasions. Um, uh, it is the case though that China hasn't been able to persuade other members of the Security Council among the elected 10 of the Security Council often to give support to those Chinese and Russian vetoes. So again there's some sort of boundary 
that prevents um, Chinese um, positions actually influencing in all circumstances, in all, all settings. Um, on R2P, for example, China voted with a very small group um, in favor of keeping it, uh, when discussed at the General Assembly on an annual basis, keeping that uh, discussion at the informal level, as it was called. But it has been adopted by the General Assembly as a formal discussion item. As I say, China was in a very small group of states that tried to, to um, work against that particular framing. Um, and it hasn't been able to protect some of the states with whom we associate um, China as having a relatively close relationship or close interest. So Myanmar, for example, the Human Rights Council established an investigative mechanism. We saw the Gambia take um, the issue of the Rohingya violations of international human humanitarian law involving the Rohingya, um, taking that under the genocide convention to the International Court of Justice. Um, if you look at North Korea as well, that's been um, subject to a series of damning reports from a Human Rights Council mandated commission of inquiry into its human rights abuses. So the conclusion then that I, I draw from this study is, um, it's not a straightforward one. Um, so what I'm trying to give you a picture of is a, is a very complex environment in which China is articulating these beliefs and um, uh, the, the triadic model as I describe it. China is aided, it's aided because the UN itself represents more than one kind of order. Uh, within the Secretariat, among membership, among its charter, and in the everyday behavior of the United Nations. This is a very complex ordering mechanism, and therefore it makes it extraordinarily difficult to, to describe China as either a revisionist or status quo, um, because the setting of the United Nations contains a range of conflicting normative elements. I mean, we, we're very familiar with that, include the UN Charter's mm. Article 2.7, which pledges non-intervention in matters uh, essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state, uh, but also the Charter's powerful statement calling for universal respect for um, human rights and, and fundamental freedoms. Or you look at something like paragraph 139 of the World Summit Outcome Document, referencing R2P, international actors are obligated to help protect populations from mass atrocity crimes where a state is manifestly failing in its duty of protection. So it's a complex ordering um, normative environment. Um, and as I've said, it, it, China is aided by that complexity, but there is a degree of pushback. There is a post-Westphalian identity uh, dating especially from the post-Cold War era, and that's promoted energetically in the Secretariat and by some UN member states. Um, and as we know, civil society groups still remain vibrant in many of the societies in which China operates. And if you look at some of the research on the effectiveness or otherwise of UN peace operations, they tend to underline how important it is to strengthen local knowledge and to search out a range of opinion within countries, inside countries that are hosting peace operations in order to be able to reduce and manage conflict. 
uh, as, as is probably clear, the most direct of Beijing's challenges is, as, uh, that comes from what I'm, uh, I've been saying is in the area of human rights. Um, this insistence that the right to subsistence, uh, right to development, the primary basic human rights, and the statements that um, talk about the so-called um, universality of human rights, the attempt really to turn the Human Rights Council into a technical capacity building body rather than one that holds states to account for human rights lapses. And so in this area, you see China being particularly vigorous, you know, trying to cut budgets for human rights and so on. Um, it's engaging in, in uh, what, what uh, Barry Buzan and Zhang Yongjin have described as public reasoning as an engaged actor rather than an outlier, but it is a particularly challenging form of public reasoning. Um, but it has partial success because even in this area, because some elements, um, some constituencies within the United Nations are concerned about the issue areas of human rights and, and R2P and the more intrusive aspects of the human protection agenda. Um, I've been going about half an hour. If, if I just make a final point, if that's all right, Ezra, just about the, what I see is the kind of United Nations that China would prefer to see. Um, difficult um, though that might be to be um, authoritative or predictive, but uh, I think were China to, uh, to acquire the increased authority within the UN that it's been seeking, and we know already that it, it heads four of the UN's, Chinese nationals head four of the UN's specialized agencies, four out of 15. It's also seeking higher level positions within the Secretariat. It's, it's, it's got some of them, but uh, it, it's seeking more. If that were to occur, if it becomes a more powerful actor within the Secretariat, I think we're likely to see a return to a UN that's more re reminiscent of the 70s or the 1980s. And so it would be a UN that would appear even more than is the case today as a kind of interstate governance body. Um, it, individual states would be the ones deciding on priorities. Um, the international community is essentially an mm -hmm. enabler or a supporter of, of the government in power. And so that represents for me a fairly minimalist, a pluralist state-based conception of international order, where the international community is essentially reduced to a resource rather than a partner. And I think that overplays um, the notion that choices determined at the central governmental level will resolve issues associated with state fragility or benefit a state's wider society. And I think it sidesteps the problem that uh, for international actors to agree to commit resources um, will require that they are afforded a larger role in determining how those resources are used. Um, a larger role then than Beijing's formulation um, implies. Um, so I think overall what I'm suggesting is that Beijing's vision, um, as, as articulated at the UN, is something which has familiar elements, it has conservative elements, um, it means that the categories, revisionist, reformist, status quo, all could be said to be in play in different parts of the UN system. And I think what I also want to say that 
is that that is in part because the post-Westphalian framing of the 1990s um, has not carried enough of the UN member states with it. Um, and that maybe is one of the debates that uh, will take center stage um, in the next uh, five to 10 years of the UN's uh, existence. So I'll leave it there, Ezra. Thank you very much for allowing me to, to try and lay some of this out. And um, I'm happy to try and respond to comments and questions as they arise. Well, I would like to start with uh, a question, a couple mm. of questions. Um, one, uh, the, I mean, the overall picture of uh, China playing a very active role, uh, contributing financially, contributing to peacekeeping, uh, play, playing, uh, wanting to have a bigger role in the UN. At the same time, the human rights issue, which uh, many others uh, emphasize, is a kind of pushback that places limits. I mean, that's sort of one of the main takeaways. But yeah. uh, the overall picture of how the UN uh, has gotten a lot of Chinese attention and support. Some people say the, the China has played a much bigger role than in the UN than in some other international institutions. I wonder if you could uh, give a little uh, comparison between how you see uh, China's role in the UN and uh, some other uh, institutions. Uh, some people say that some other inter international institutions, um, the WTO and so forth, China has not taken such an active, constructive role. Mm. How do you see uh, its role in the UN compared to its role in other international institutions? Yeah, I mean, I, I, let me start by saying I, I do think it has uh, singled out the UN to, to some degree for some of the reasons that I've suggested. Um, I think it can construct uh, via the UN, uh, a kind of um, both a sense of itself as a key element in post-war order. That's what this this emphasis on, you know, the first signatory of the UN Charter is about. That it it had a role in post-war order, and that that had it was it, it was right to it was right to play that role mm -hmm. in post-war order. Um, <coughs> And I think it's also an, an environment in which it can, if you like, lay out a, um, a, a sort of a moral position of the place that it uh, forms uh, within that body. So um, yes, it provides you know, more troops than the other four members of the P5 combined. Yes, it has uh, given these resources to the United Nations. Um, it, it's a place where, you know, as I said, it's a very valuable platform for, for saying these kinds of things. What we could also say about those things, though, is that actually the numbers of troops that it provides is, is still very, very small. It doesn't compare with countries like um, India or Bangladesh or Ethiopia and so on, who provide many more troops than um, those that the, the Chinese provide. So it, 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 that kind of 
questioning, that relative questioning doesn't tend to take place within the UN framework um, because it's managed to sort of articulate a special role for itself within, within the UN system. In other international organizations, I mean, one where I would single out um, a more active uh, Chinese role is in somewhere like the G20, for example, um, which it regards as an important international institution and as a place where various um, um, uh, uh, agreements had been reached, not notably with respect to the global financial crisis that provided a very important venue in which to articulate particular policies um, in order to deal with the onset of that particular crisis. China is also active within regional organizations and we know that it's played a large role in uh, trying to formulate the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, obviously plays a, a, a crucial role within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and so on. So uh, it, it would like to play, it would like the, something like the ASEAN Regional um, the forum also to, to have more of a defining role within that. That's more difficult because of the membership of that particular grouping. So I think there are a number of organizations where it has played um, a more active role, but there is this kind of special um, uh, place for it within the United Nations. There's a, there's a status equality within the United Nations. It is one of the P5. It has equal status with the other four members. The veto gives it that. And there is this sense of sort of the legal sovereign equality of nations. Bodies like the IMF, World Bank, it doesn't, although its voting rights have increased over the last few years, it, it's not on the basis, it's, it's a hierarchical basis, as you know, it doesn't, it's not equally weighted across the members of those organisations. So in those organisations where it has the, um, the opportunity and the capacity to act, it, it is acting and the UN, I think, fulfills that role for it. Uh, one of the uh, issues as someone who's worked on Japan is concerned about mm. is that Beijing uh, prevented Japan from becoming one of the P5, P6, P7 uh, yes. principal powers. Uh, and uh, India and um, possibly Brazil or so forth. Um, you think that issue is still alive? Uh, does it still influence, say, uh, Japanese resistance to China? Uh, or do you think that that, that issue of uh, who shall be in the uh, large uh, P5 issue, foreign uh, mm. members, uh, mm. um, is, that, is that a dead issue now or is that still alive? Um. I think it's alive in two ways, really. I think the the first way, and, I, and in many ways that I regard as the more significant uh, way, is that the UN Security Council suffers from a legitimacy deficit. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, it's not just China that has risen, but there are other, there's been a diffusion of power in the international system and an expectation that the United Nations Security Council would reflect that diffusion of power. And so I think that this failure to reform the UN Security Council is a serious loss for the United Nations and for those that care about this as a multilateral organization. The other part of my response there is also to say that 
And in some senses, that speaks against Chinese objectives. Uh, I mean, the Chinese obviously, um, for the reasons that I outlined at the start, I mean, they see the United Nations as an important platform for them to articulate their beliefs and, and, and because of the status, that it, the equal status that it gives them, is an important venue. And yet, they are one of the countries, obviously, that is not... Um, articulating a clear vision of what reform of the Security Council should look like. Um, and so there is a bit of a paradox, I, I feel, uh, in Chinese foreign policy positions, as there are on a number of uh, Chinese foreign policy positions. <laughs> but uh, that's that to do with the legitimacy of the Security Council, I think that's a, a major element. I think also, yes, there are the, you know, there's clearly a very strong sentiment still in China that Japan should not be on, on the Security Council. I mean, it's both a domestic sentiment and, a, and an official sentiment. Um, and um, I mean, it, 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 to some degree, um, the issue has disappeared off the international agenda to a degree because there are so many other things that are going on at, the, at present. But again, I don't think Japan will actually give up its um, pressure to to be considered for uh, a UN Security Council membership role. Um, similarly with India, um, I mean, it's blown hot and cold on the issue, but um, again, th there is a resentment um, that it hasn't been considered as, uh, as, a, as deserving of the mantle of Security Council membership. And it's not China alone, of course, that <laughs> that um, uh, is, is reason for the failure of, of, of Security Council reform. Um, but nevertheless, both of these states see China as lukewarm on the idea of sort of diffusing the status that Security Council membership and use the veto. I mean, this is the crucial thing. I mean, China would not want to be part of a Security Council um, where the veto was diluted or even taken away. I mean, that, that, that would worry it con considerably. It would worry the other P5 members too, but it would worry China, um, since we're talking about China, it would certainly worry China. You make the point about um, China having history as an early signature, and so that has that uh, old connection yeah. with the UN. But another part of the history is that in the Korean War, yeah. uh, the United States and the UN forces fought against China. Yes. In the last few days, I've seen Chinese uh, uh, reviving the story yeah. of how their forces resisted uh, the UN uh, forces uh, and overcame the United States and the UN. I think it sounds as, as if they want to prepare the people, don't be afraid of that uh, big bad United States and even with the United Nations. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, how does China deal with that? history, does that, uh, when they think about the United Nations, they just forget that period or, or uh, well, I mean, they tend to gloss over that. Yes. I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, the, as I say, this, this recent reference to the signatory, uh, first signatory on the UN charter and so on, you know, they, the, the absence of the, the PRC from the UN, the fact that the UN labeled China an aggressor in Korea, um, that becomes a story about the United States 
or perhaps even the Western powers, not a story about the United Nations. So you think about China's statement in 1965, um, uh, of course, a particularly radical period in Chinese foreign policy, but they talk about um, as a dirty, the UN as a dirty international stock exchange in the grip of a few big powers. Mao referred to the United Nations as a cesspit. I mean, you know, so, so the actual, uh, if you go back to the actual period, you know, the earlier period, then the view of the United Nations was incredibly negative, obviously, you know, with the Republic of China in the, in the UN seat and so on. But in, 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 in contemporary framing of um, the United Nations, then it becomes, the, the Korean War story would become not a UN story, but a, but a US story. Um, Yes. Uh, here is a question from Tony Sun, uh, who is at the Harvard College Phillips Brooks House Center. Hmm. How realistic is it to rely on the UN to promote peace and equity under the current global power balance? Uh, the, uh, the implication clearly is there's a lot of power out there in the United Nations itself. This institution may not have uh, that much power to to say prevent nations from fighting against each other. And he draws the comparison between the League of Nations, uh, where the League of Nations could not really control Imperial Japan and Germany. Uh, does the United Nations as an institution have any capacity uh, to prevent uh, conflict between uh, the major powers of the world? Yeah, I mean, major powers of the world it's extraordinarily difficult for the United Nations to act, of course. Um, um, it, as the UN Secretary General will constantly remind us, you know, the UN is made up of member states and certain of those member states have more power than others and certain of those member states that are powerful are on the UN Security Council. And therefore certain issues will not be dealt with through through the UN Security Council. So of course, it's always been about selective security rather than collective security, as far as the United Nations is concerned. But that doesn't mean to say that it can't play a positive role um, in world politics. I mean, I think it was important that um, something like the Paris Agreement um, on climate change was facilitated uh, through a UN framework that something like the um, agreement uh, with the Iran on the nuclear uh, issue was again um, authorized by the UN Security Council, legitimated by the UN Security Council. I think it kind of gives it a, a particular status and standing that it otherwise those sorts of agreements otherwise wouldn't have. It makes it more difficult. We know that the United Nations can, you know, adopt um, certain sanctions that actually can help to constrain certain forms of behavior. And the United Nations often acts as a kind of an aspirational body. Um, it played a major role in the past in um, the decolonization process. Again, providing a platform for states to articulate the important norm of self-determination and to remind member states that, you know, the UN Charter says this about fundamental freedoms, about um, human rights, and, and that we should be moving to um, a decolonized world. So it can play roles, but I'm not going to pretend that major wars uh, between major states are necessarily going to go through the UN system. And we've seen 
the difficulties that the UN's had in dealing with the dreadful Syria crisis or with the Yemen and so on. So, you know, you know there are certain topics that are never going to get onto the UN Security Council agenda. But it doesn't mean to say that within that sort of selective framing that I've suggested that important things can't be done, um, can't be said. As you know, uh, you, you're talking to uh, Americans now at the time when we are preoccupied with uh, our own election. Sure. And uh, some of us uh, believe that if Biden should be elected, that the United States might begin to play a bigger role, resume its uh, relations with uh, international institutions. Mm. Uh, you have, you know, uh, maybe some of us are too hopeful or optimistic. What do you think of some realistic scenarios if the United States uh, under Biden should begin uh, to play a, a show of willingness to take a bigger role in the United Nations and some of the other international institutions? Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you think that it could happen quickly? Or, I just wonder, how do you see that process uh, working out? I, mean, I mean, I think, yeah, I think certain things could happen fairly quickly. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you all um, know so much more. I mean, I obviously I'm following this election very, very closely as large parts of the world are. Um, and obviously Biden is going to be hugely um, absorbed by the domestic agenda, you know, obviously, COVID is one thing, but the economic fallout from all that's associated with it um, is going to, you know, absorb, you know, unemployment, those kinds of questions are going to absorb him as they're absorbing our government. But um, there are certain things I imagine that um, a Biden administration would do fairly quickly. Um, I think you obviously would seek to rebuild alliance relationships, which are very seriously frayed. I think it would, um, I think it would uh, join the, rejoin the human, the Human Rights Council and, and, and uh, I think it would have a different relationship with the WHO. I think it might even work more collectively on the COVID issue so that you, we would have some form of sort of leadership, um, uh, collective leadership working with um, uh, various countries around the world. I, I, I think, you know, the whole tone of it would shift from being um, uh, unilateralist America first type framing that we have at the moment and disdain really for alliances and international organization to um, a realization that although international organizations can't do everything, they are an important force multiplier for the United States. I mean, I, and in terms of what else it should do, and in terms of my project, I also think that the Biden administration needs to think about, you know, down the line, not, <laughs> not in the first year, you know, down the line, we need to think about what it is um, about what China offers the developing world that is so attracted to them, to a number of them, you know, and, and what is it that they dislike about these, these elements of, of, of Chinese um, coalescence with parts of the developing world and what uh, a US administration and other countries allied with it might, might do about not to compete uh, across the board in, in sort of development issues with the Chinese, but to think about, you know, why these countries 
um, have been crying out for things like infrastructure projects and um, to be noticed, um, to be taken seriously and so on, and to think about what um, what could be offered and and um, and how that how that should be done. But that's down the line. As I say, it'll probably be domestic first, but then some swift moves to emphasize that actually there's a recognition that multilateral cooperation in given the collective cha cha challenges that faces. I mean, Biden administration obviously has talked about climate change and rejoining the Paris Agreement, as, as I understand it. I think that's yeah. right, isn't it? Um, so, so those sorts of things can be done fairly swiftly and send a very important political signal. Um, as you know, our students are very concerned uh, about the problem of how you're going to do research now with, with China. Mm. And uh, I wonder uh, how, what you're advising students now who want to continue to do work over the next several years on international relations with China. Uh, what kind of topics or what kind of modalities, how, how, how do you tell your students, what kind of advice do you give your students and what they might do uh, to uh, carry out research in international China? Yeah, well, I mean, my approach to my students has always been for you, student, to sit there and tell me what it is that's brought you to have an interest in the parts of the world that I'm interested in and whether that's the US-China relationship or the international relations of East Asia or you know security issues and so on world order questions regional order questions so my argument would always start from the perspective that I want to know about what is it that excites you and can we frame a question as a result of that I mean obviously I'm interested in these questions of what difference it makes to world order, to regional order, that we now have a major player uh, acting more ambitiously, um, more um, obviously on the international stage. And what, what does that mean in terms of some of these questions about um, the future shape of, of world and regional order? I'm also interested in questions about the I, what I see as the kind of mismatch between a number of Chinese statements, um, uh, particularly as it involves its own region, um, and its more generalized statements about shared community of humankind and so on. But, you know, so there's a, there is very often a, a huge tension, I think, between the idea of, of China wanting to, if you like, be a kind of benign hegemon within its own region, and yet statements that almost weaponize ideas of sovereignty um, with its neighbors, um, you know, an unwillingness, if you like, to compromise on those issues that divide it from its neighbors. Um, and and that, that tension between these two things, you know, why, why is there sort of a, not a recognition that many of the things that China would like to see um, um, as a positive outcome in terms of regional relations are stymied actually by the way in which it approaches um, some of the questions that divide it from its neighbours. So the emphasis becomes more a kind of a, a dominance question rather than a kind of um, a consensual uh, cooperative dimension um, and, and it's, it's thinking about those sorts of questions that would really um, 
would really um, interest uh, me in the future. One, one of the other things that I want to do um, um, be great if, I, if one of my former students would work with me on it, it'd be fantastic. I mean, one of the other things that I'm interested in, because I'm interested in this notion of the complicated nature of so-called global order or so-called rules-based order, um, normative orders, is I'm very interested in um, it, the human rights question, for example. China tackles it differently within the Security Council from um, the Human Rights Council from another body that it set up called the South-South uh, Forum um, on Human, Global Forum on, on Human Rights. Now it actually acts um, rather differently in the, those three venues. How, um, how different? Well, in the South-South Forum, I mean it's, it's, it's much more in a direct leadership role and it artic has articulated a so-called Beijing Declaration on Human Rights that very boldly states its actual positions on human rights and argues that you know there is this groundswell of support in favour of it. Within the Human Rights Council it, it adopts a variety of methods, sometimes it leads, sometimes it lets others lead, um, sometimes it um, steps back and is more passive on particular issues. Um, within something like the Security Council, it's much more of a sort of a negotiated outcome where it actually has to, so, to uh, acquiesce reluctantly. So a very trivial thing, like the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights um, is often called upon to give a statement on, before the UN Security Council on some human rights related issue or the general thrust of uh, her perception of human rights uh, in, in today's world and so on. The Chinese will uh, try to prevent that happening, Russians too, but they will try to prevent that happening, um, but often will acquiesce to that because it's not because of, you know, the nature of the venue, um, the, the, de the design of the particular institution, the fact of precedence, which is so important within the Security Council setting. So, you know, it, it's these kinds of design questions, precedence questions, as well as um, membership questions that I'm quite interested in um, looking at, because they, again, they complicate the notion about the extent to which China is a challenge or not. Um, and it makes it more difficult for us to, to make, you know, very hard and fast uh, statements about China's role in, in the world. I wonder if uh, uh, two other uh, co-organizers, Bill Overholt or Bill Xiao, uh, have any uh, comments or questions? Uh, Bill? I, I did want to ask uh, about uh, continuity and change. Mm -hmm. I, the perspective you provided on, on China's positions is, is just so incisive. Uh, I find it marvelously useful. Thank you. I wonder if there are elements of continuity and change. Let, let me give examples of what I mean. Uh, economic development as a foundational right has been a core element of of Chinese policy forever. Uh, there's been no change. Um, if you look at Hong Kong policy, on the other hand, 
uh, you know, some Western commentators saying, oh, now they're doing what they always wanted to do. No. Mm. Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin had a, an image that took the principles of one country, two systems, and, and all those promises very, very seriously. And, and Xi Jinping has just thrown that away and done something different. Now, most of the elements of Chinese policy in the UN you talked about seem to be pretty continuous. They, they're more emphatic statements uh, as China's power has grown. But are there elements that are distinctive or balances that are distinctive to the Xi Jinping period? Uh, and that uh, that might indicate areas that, that could undergo further change in the future. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point, Bill. Um, I mean, there are, of course, elements, strong elements of continuity, and you can find references to development, social stability, all of that. And we know that China is status and so on. So, um, I mean, you know, what is it that's different? Why do I focus on it now? And I think there are, there are a couple of reasons, but they, they don't destroy your continuity point at all, actually, but they, they, they add a sort of a layer to it, um, an important layer, I think. And the, the fact is of it being articulated much more as a package and um, articulating the, the idea of development as a, as a kind of a, a foundational right, yes, can be found in that first white paper on human rights way back in 1991 and so on. Uh, um, that, but um, it, it, it wouldn't, um, it, within some, a body like um, the Human Rights Council, or the, sorry, the Human Rights Commission and so on, it wouldn't have actually introduced a resolution it wouldn't have um, um, used the phrase, you know, so-called um, universal rights. I mean, again, if you look back to the 1980s, I mean, China celebrated um, with great fanfare, you know, the Universal Declaration on, on Human Rights. Um, it signed up to the, you know, the Vienna Agreement that linked the two covenants together very strongly. So the idea that they were indivisible and so on. So, so, so uh, you know, it's articulating a view on human rights uh, along the lines of, you know, we come from different cultures, we're part of different civilizations, each one is equally meritorious, therefore you have no right to comment on my behavior, you know, so, so it's that sort of more fulsome articulation of the argument. It's the linking of the development, social stability, strong state more firmly, I think, in, in its statements. And you can see that actually in Chinese um, scholarly work in particular and, and some of the think tank writing. So you've probably come across this idea of developmental peace that's been articulated by a number of Chinese scholars. But, you know, this notion that essentially the UN has put too much emphasis on the political change, you know, security sector reform and so on. It needs to focus much more on the kind of the, the development side and from that 
you will get a peaceful outcome and so on. So, so you, you, it, there's much more of a kind of a, um, a, a, um, a confidence about articulating this, this kind of three-pronged idea. Um, and there's an actual willingness to put yourself out in front and to say, you know, this is my stance on this and, and um, I'm looking for your support um, for it. Thank you. Right. Bill, do you have a question or comment, Bill? Oh, we can't hear you, Bill. Yes. Now we can hear you. I wonder, though, um, the three pillars hmm. put forth by the United Nations, could that be refined some? Because uh, from my perspective, China comes from a different perspective of first to feed the people, at least mm. 30 years ago. That's the first priority. Mm. It's not human rights, but it's part of human rights to be free from hunger. Mm. But that's a priority issue. So could you, uh, China and the UN come to some kind of a compromise to say, countries have different stages of development. Mm. And actually, we, and there are different trade-offs. I'm trained as an economist. We always believe there are trade-offs. Mm. So therefore, the three pillars, development, human rights, and, and social, uh, I mean, uh, they, uh, have different trade-offs at different stages mm, mm. and apply that to be more flexible rather than make a unit, unitary declaration. Mm. Is that possible? Yeah. Um, um, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Um, and, and perhaps that's what I'm suggesting could happen were China to become more influential within the Secretariat. Um, but again, the charter itself has the three pillars of human rights, security, and development as uh, the institutional structure, um, ECOSOC, the Security Council, the Human Rights Council, that's well-established institutional structure. So it's a big ask to get a, a real shift away from those things. And of course, there are many states that would argue that actually, okay, you know, feeding the people is absolutely crucial, but how do you know um, who needs to be fed? How do you know that some groups aren't being favored over others? How do you know that the development that's chosen by the state um, at the central level is right for a particular area? The only way you're gonna know about things like that is with a free press, an independent civil society, um, a, a, a populace that is confident of being able to speak up about the things that really concern it. And, and so I find it very difficult to get away from, from that particular element and to imagine that at one particular development stage, you ignore all of that. You know, you know Amartya Sen, of course, famously said that famines never occur in countries with a free press. Now you may have, you know, not be entirely right there, but but that was the kind, you know, that that's the kind of framing that 
I'm persuaded by um, and therefore no I don't see it as different stages or possibility for that kind of trade-off I don't see it as a trade-off in other words yeah. I'm afraid our time has already passed I've let it run a little long okay. um, and I think it shows that we're very interested Rosemary in what you had to say and so we thank you for uh, presenting today and uh, I think many of us look forward to reading your book too so thank have a great victory. Thank you very much, Ezra. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.